Hello, and welcome to my podcast, John Scott Lawton's English, you know. In this episode, I interview Leon Conrad, who is the author of Story and Structure, A Complete Guide. We talk about what stories actually are, where they come from, why they exist, their purpose, what we use them for, and what they may or may not be in the future. This is a complex and difficult topic, but one rich in language itself, as we explore the oral tradition of telling stories verbally, um, which has gone on for thousands of years, and now also the written text and what that means. We also cast an eye to the future and talk about how artificial intelligence may change the way in which stories are created and experienced by human beings. If you wish to leave a comment relating to the podcast, please do so either using the sound app on Anchor or by contacting me at johnscottlawton at hotmail.co.uk. I'd be delighted to hear from you. Thank you very much indeed. Leon, I'm uh, delighted to meet you online and uh, thank you very much for taking up this invitation to talk about your work. Um, I'm fascinated about this because storytelling, the telling of stories, whether it's orally or in writing in a book, preferably in a book, but could be online, of course, and we'll talk about that, um, is something that I've been uh, interested and involved in literally all my life. So um, please introduce yourself. Tell me a little about yourself, where you're from and, and what your primary interests are in storytelling. John, thank you for having me. What a pleasure to be able to engage in a conversation about story. I'm Leon Conrad. I am the author of a book called Story and Structure, which is the result of a 10-year research, research journey into what makes story work. And it all started because I had a life-changing experience when I was a kid back in Alexandria in Egypt, where I grew up, hearing a story told in an absolutely well-preserved oral Arabian Nights tradition. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Literally I've around the campfire? I'm sorry? Was, was it literally around the campfire or was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was room? in a school classroom, unusually. Ah. Mm -hmm. It was towards the end of the school year. I can't remember which year it was, but it was a phenomenally rowdy classroom that had the <laughs> reputation of being the worst class in the school. <laughs> The headmaster was an enlightened headmaster who knew every member of his staff and knew what their talents were. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that this week there was a bug going around and many of his staff members were off sick. So many were classes needed depths. Mm -hmm. Our class, nobody wanted. Yeah. The maths teacher was off sick. We were delighted an excuse to just run riot. Maths was our least favorite subject. He was our least favorite teacher. Uh -huh. And the headmaster walked around the corridors, found someone who had a talent and sent her into our classroom. Uh -huh. 5G, she said. 5G. Hmm. <laughs> I guess the conversation must have gone like you 
I guess you didn't find anyone else. And he probably nodded and she said, all right. Yes, she'll take on the challenge. And when she went in, of course, we had rulers flipping um, paper pellets all over the place. And when we saw the cleaner come in, a middle-aged Mahangaba wearing a hijab, we ran riot, of -hmm. course. What was she going to teach us? Until she said, hold on just a minute. Uh Who wants to hear a story? And that got our attention. She didn't want to teach us anything. Yes. And then when she asked, what would you like to hear the story about? That really got our attention. Hands went up all around the classroom. And within seconds, we were a disciplined bunch of students ready and willing and waiting. She spun a story improvised from the Arabian Nights tradition with Mm -hmm. elements that she'd been given and left us masterfully 45 minutes later or so as the bell rang for recess on a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. It was magical. Mm -hmm. A year later, similar experience. She came in, everyone immediately was attentive. Mm -hmm. Said, ah, I see I've been to your class before. Did I tell you a story? Yes, you did. What was it about? Everyone in the classroom could remember exactly what that story was about. And she started from where she'd left off a year previously. Mm-hmm. Again, 45 minutes, we were spellbound. She left us on a cliffhanger. I've never heard the completion of the tale. I couldn't tell you what she told us uh, the story was about, but I remember the experience. I remember feeling then, I want to know how you do that, because mm-hmm. that is real power. So she was working off some kind of formula there, because you said that she improvised She didn't know you as children. She didn't know other than your reputation, which sounded to have gone before you. But she used elements of what you gave her as ideas, and she wove those literally like a blanket or a carpet into a story. Um, Exactly. I I mentioned there around the campfire, because that originally is where stories, of course, were first told, weren't they? Around where people would be probably living either in the desert or outdoors, and there would be a fire going, and then people would tell a tale tell a story often with some either kind of moral theme to it so it's teaching a lesson or it may have been just an adventure story something to stimulate the imagination and creativity and do you think there were elements in what she was doing with you which was creating that unknown from little bits of the known is that what she was doing with you i think it is creating little bits of the known from a vast experience of the unknown Mm -hmm. In fact, my engagement with story is part of a project I'm calling The Unknown Storyteller. It's Uh a familiar stranger. As you say, we're all familiar with stories. We have this image of stories being told around a campfire. Very often the stories do have a didactic or moral purpose. But Uh where did those stories come from in the first place, John? And with your research, what made you feel that this uh, you had a book in you for this? Because you've written a 500-page tome, a nice word for a book, um, clearly very well-received, and it's receiving awards already. Um, what was it that you found with some of the, the key features uh, of narrative or a story that, that made a story a story? The impulse for me to go into 
writing a book that ended up being 528 pages was an encounter with a book called The Cambridge Guide to Narrative by H. Porter Abbott, a person I admire very greatly. But in that book, he made a claim. He claimed that what makes the story of Cinderella the story of Cinderella is a question we'll never be able to answer with precision. Mm -hmm. and that stopped me in my tracks. I thought, why ever not? What is it that makes you so sure? Have you got a crystal ball or something? Mm -hmm. And I love questions that get under my skin and haunt me. Mm -hmm. And when I get a question like that, I want to know, I want to reach a satisfactory answer. It may not be the definitive or comprehensive answer, but it will be a satisfactory answer for the time being. Mm -hmm. As I searched, I talked to oral storytellers, I read books, I uh, looked at some of the theories of storytelling, many of which I summarize in the book. But I was fortunate enough to meet a guy called George Spencer Brown, who wrote a strange book that was published in 1969 called Laws of Form. Mm -hmm in which he outlined a very simple calculus based on six visually intuitive symbols, which he claimed you could map anything with. He showed the application to logic, to mathematics, to algebra. Um, other people have applied it to show how it works with geometry and computing. I am one of the first people to apply it systematically to the analysis of story structure. Mm -hmm. And because it's so simple, and very, very flexible. It allows you to, to map the underlying energy of the driver that pushes story forward. And if you're in touch with that energy, you know where to speed up, you know where to slow down, you know where to build surprise, mm -hmm. build suspense, and weave those elements into a structure that you can use irrespective of whether you're telling a story about a princess, a jinn and a freet, or mm -hmm. whether you're telling an essay, writing an essay about, um, I don't know, what are the equivalents of a princess, a jinn and a freet? Uh, the princess would be something positive, like world peace. Mm -hmm. The jinn would be uh, the need to achieve nuclear disarmament. Mm -hmm. And the afrit is the human race and their inability or miraculous ability, possibly, to make things work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So something like, you know, others reduce that to problem-solution formulae, don't they, where they, they look at what is it we're trying to achieve and what are the goals. Others break it down further, targets, objectives then process about how we're going to get there. We have this whole methodology now about agile management of projects, uh, which is redeveloping and developing ideas as you go along. In a sense, that's what the cleaner was doing when she was telling the story. She was developing an idea, but then looking at the faces of the young boys and girls in the room, um, responding to that and changing it, putting in a bit of fear, maybe putting in a bit of fright and then putting in excitement. And as you said, changing the pace of the story to, to keep attention. Um, is it as basic as some people say story must have a beginning, a middle and an end? Is that far too simplistic or is there something in that formula? 
It's a good question, John, and it depends on the type of story. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to what you said about problem, though, first, because while many stories do start with a character who has a problem, and that is the inciting incident that takes them forward on their storyline, there are stories that have feature a character that doesn't have a problem. A classic example I talk about in my book, Story and Structure, is the opening of the book of Genesis mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, where God creates the world. On the first day, he does this. On the second day, he does that. On the third day, he does that. There is no problem. It's not as if he says, oh, there is no light. Let's make some light because mm -hmm. it's dark. No, it's just let there be light, and there was light. Uh -huh. And God looked and saw it was good. And then he went on and made the second thing. That is a structure I call the creation myth structure. Uh -huh. Not all creation myths follow this structure, but it's the name I give the structure, and it just flows forward. Uh -huh. And I think that's what we're called to do. I think that's the purpose of story, to help us find this state of flow where there is no beginning, middle or end. They just coalesce into the present, mm -hmm. which contains past, present and future, but is the eternal now. Mm -hmm. Coming back to your second question and addressing that point about does a story have to have a beginning, middle and end? If you ask a novelist, they will say, well, yes. But every chapter has a beginning, middle and end. Every sentence has a beginning, middle and end. Every book has a beginning, middle and end. But they may not be the beginning, middle and end of the entire story. Mm -hmm. Even a saga like The Lord of the Rings has a bigger context to it. Mm -hmm. If you ask an oral storyteller like Shona Lee Cumbers, who was a great inspiration and helped to me in writing this, she contains 4,000 stories, roughly, within her, that mm. she can come out with at any point. She is a she's the last, as far as we know, proponent of a living Drutzilla tradition. It's a Jewish women's storytelling tradition, mm -hmm. which was passed down from grandmother to granddaughter through generations. She would say, and her grandmother, her bubba, would say, well, where did you come into the story? Because all her stories are lattice. They're not just nested. They're not just stories within stories. They are part of a huge mythic epic network, mm -hmm. which contains myths, legends, folk tales, wonder tales, all joined together in one story world. Mm -hmm. It has no beginning or end, apart from the same beginning and end that the universe itself has. Mm -hmm. So you could put that right back to the widest perspective. Is it possible to switch within that lattice, within that framework, within those dots, if you like? Can you join those dots in any way you want? Can you jump across and can you go up and down and across and diagonally? Or does there have to be a flow? Does there have to be a path, or a well-worn path or a, a pattern to the selection of elements of a story? But can you literally, or can you mix and match? Can you mix things up and make up whatever you want within a story? There are elements, John. So 
there will be points where you can nest stories. Typically, people gathering around a campfire or staying the night in a place, exchanging stories. And that's where she might put a few well-known stories, maybe stories that will amuse the kids that might be in the audience. But there are jumping off points mm -hmm. in the story that lead either to a different character's storyline that fits another part of the, of the lattice, uh, or that allow you to jump into a different time frame or mode of telling. And it's up to the audience to guide the telling. She might say, the king died. And on that day, 547 eagles flew over the palace. And why 547 eagles flew over the palace is another story. And she would wait. And if the audience says, well, the listeners say, for another time, it means leave that. I want to hear the story we're on. Mm -hmm. But if they say, oh, I want to hear that story, then she is duty bound to stop the story she's telling, move on to the story of the eagles. Mm -hmm. And within that story, there might be another jumping off point. You might never get back to the story about the king who died mm -hmm. and what happened there. It's a journey through the lattice. Mm -hmm. In some way, filmmakers have been accused of only having several stories, haven't they? Five or six uh, movie plots that they keep coming back and they keep recycling. Do you think that, again, is too narrow an understanding of their craft? And actually, scriptwriters are very creative and they can come up with many different themes. Are they within this lattice and this framework when making a visual piece? Not a book, but they're making, in their case, a film. I'm talking in generalizations here, but it has been very much a trope recently that Hollywood has become far too cookie cutterish in its approach mm -hmm. to funding films. That does not mean that there is not some superb script writing and filmmaking in Hollywood, but particularly in indie films, in independent cinema and in world cinema. Mm -hmm just telling something slightly differently in a different way away from the formula. And that makes it stand out, doesn't it, when you do something unexpected. And is that kind of urgency and that unexpected nature within storytelling, is that something you came across in your research, that that's what intrigues, intrigues us, that's the hook that keeps us listening? Because listening is actually very an active process, isn't it? As you said, when you were being told your story at school in 5G, she was actually trying to entertain you to keep you occupied because you were known as being unruly or noisy children. But she had you spellbound. She had you captivated. But she must have done that through actually looking at and listening to your responses and then giving you something different, something interesting to hang on to. So what are those hooks that you found within stories that are particularly attractive? Different people will give you different answers. I can only give you the answers that I found in my work. And everyone's answer is valid. Mine is new novel, so I'm sharing it to add to the general picture out there. What I've found is that there are three types of events that happen to a character in their storyline. The first is a forward 
moving event, something that propels them towards the goal that they want to achieve. The second is an event that stops them in mm -hmm. their tracks. Mm -hmm. And within that family of events, I include meetings, meetings with other characters, meetings with objects. They have to stop, just like in a video game, you stop, you talk to a character, you get a bit of information that allows you to uh, go on. Or you pick up an object that allows you to solve a puzzle later mm -hmm. on in the game or something. Mm -hmm. But you have to do the stopping, you have to do the talking, you have to do the picking up, and then you can go on. That's a backward step. The third very simple quality of event is the cognitive dissonance, which I symbolize mm -hmm. as a double barb. Something going forward, backward, you don't really know which direction you're traveling in. You're stuck mm -hmm. until you solve that problem. And those are the most interesting events because the cognitive dissonance takes on different forms. It can be a deliberate intention to dupe someone. Mm -hmm. To trick, Another, yeah. to trick them. Yes, uh -huh. tricks to tails feature that kind of cognitive dissonance. Uh -huh. But there's another kind of cognitive dissonance that arises from a meeting where a character is not being tricked, they're being surprised. They go, huh? You what now? Uh -huh. And it isn't until they get to the, ah, I get it now, event that they can move on. Those types of um, stories follow what I call a trickster variation structure. Mm -hmm. And there are others, there are riddles, there are dilemma stories where the storyteller is deliberately deceiving or withholding information from the story seeker, but they're not doing it with malicious intent. Mm -hmm. They're doing it either for a didactic purpose to educate or to solve a problem within a community mm -hmm. or to amuse and entertain. Mm. So some stories can teach us something. Others, is it possible to have a story philosophically that just entertains rather than uh, educates? Is there a story which is literally a story which is interesting to listen to, doesn't have any kind of proverb within it, doesn't have any kind of saying that's particularly important, isn't there to teach us a lesson. It's literally there for us to enjoy. Is that possible? I don't think so, personally. There are examples that spring to mind, like nonsense poems, uh -huh. limericks, Edward Lear's limericks, or the bong with the, what is it? The bong with the wonderful nose, the bong with the gluminous nose. Uh -huh. Those spring to mind, but nonsense has a purpose. It makes uh -huh. you laugh. And Laughter, as I explore in the book, this is something I've discovered, is based on some kind of category mistake. And we react to this in an embodied way. We, we can't control what makes us laugh. Different things will make me laugh to the things that make you laugh, but we will each laugh. Mm -hmm. We laugh because we encounter a, a category mistake. We cry because we encounter a category correction, 
And mm -hmm. that's when we realize something. That's what Aristotle attributed catharsis to. Mm -hmm. He described catharsis as a form of soul cleansing. And yet we seek out laughter mm -hmm. far more often than we do catharsis. Yes. Does the catharsis serve the kind of purpose of needing to be made sad so that when we are sad, we know what it feels like and we can get over the experience? Or can we simply I... not replicate in story what does happen in real life? I think we engage with stories because they are realistic and we can identify with protagonists up and uh, antagonists up to a point. Mm -hmm. But we also need that distance, the distance that allows us to appreciate the wisdom in fables while still being able to distance ourselves from them and say, well, of course, it's not about me. I wouldn't behave like that bear. Yes. yes? And knowing full well that it is about human traits and foibles and also the ability to transcend those. Mm. We but, had this uh, when I was speaking with my friend Dave Lee about crime stories, because, of course, hopefully not everybody has the potential to be a murderer, although one could go that far. Um, but why is it that we have this fascination with the crime novel, you know, the fictional crime novel that... Um, the number of bestsellers that are actually based on somebody being killed by another human being. Is it because, you know, we're living that existence vicariously it would never be us. We'd never do that. Hopefully we'd never be a victim. We're entertained by these stories, but we hope it's not real life. And of course you do get true crime, but these are fictional crime novels and they're very, very popular. What's behind that popularity? Do you think Leon, what, what's firing that? Well, in terms of structure, they usually follow a quest structure. There is a problem. You don't know who committed the murder and the detective goes through a series of questions and answers that lead down uh, cul-de-sacs until they work out the full picture of the story that led to the motive, the opportunity and the means. Uh -huh. And they solve the problem. It's a typical quest structure where you can have nested trickster structures where the perpetrator of the crime is deliberately trying to put the detective off the scent the whole red where, herring yeah yeah all those things are part of it we just want we like solving puzzles mm -hmm. and when there's a bit of frisson when there's a bit of um, flavor of a, a dance with death then it uh -huh. makes it all the more uh, risky risky yeah something's at risk life is at risk isn't it in that situation so again we're almost coming back to this notion that stories are there to teach us a lesson or something maybe in preparation of when things could happen to us but we almost seem to need to have those lessons repeated or those sessions repeated to us so we we get the message um what about science fiction and futuristic thinking is that doing a similar thing is that sort of predicting the future and giving us opportunities or windows into future needs, future requirements, and how we would survive them. You know, this notion that we might be living on another planet, you know, people writing about that for hundreds of years. Is is that something that realistically one can put into the formula of a story because it is so unknown? You started off by asking about uh, the purpose of story. 
Mm -hmm. and you cited the didactic or moral purpose. You then went on to science fiction stories mm -hmm. and futuristic stories. Let me go back and offer up a different way of looking at story. Mm -hmm. Not so much in terms of purpose or content, but in terms of the reason we have story in the first place, not how story is used, mm -hmm. but why it exists as a phenomena. Why do we tell stories rather than sing melodies? Mm -hmm. Why do we tell stories rather than write recipes and communicate through food? Stories do something. What I found in my research is that irrespective of the content or context or genre, mm -hmm. there are structures that stories follow that can be traced across these genres. Mm -hmm. One example of that commonality is the structure that underlies the story of the three little pigs. That structure is the quest structure. You have the pigs, those are your characters, who have a problem, they're thrown out of the house. Mm -hmm. They go on a journey, they meet friends or helpers who give them the supplies they need to build their houses. They meet an enemy or hindrance, the wolf who wants to eat them up. And depending on the version of the story, that either happens or they end up in the third pig's house. Mm -hmm. All safe. <laughs> yes. And they end up living together as independent little piggies. Those steps are the steps we follow when we want to solve a problem that is within our power to solve. Let's say you've lost your car keys. You need to go uh, to an important meeting drive there. You can't leave without locking the front door of the house. Mm -hmm. Your car keys and your house keys are on the same key fob and you can't find them. So you go on a search, you go on an internal search and your memories are your friends and helpers. They tell you, oh, they could be beside your bed. You go up, let's make the story short. You find them, ta-da, problem solved. You can leave the house. You will not be late for your meeting. You lock the door, you open the car, you drive off safely, you're there. Mm -hmm. The events, that sequence, is exactly the same sequence that the three little pigs follow. But it's also the sequence that you follow when you want to write a well-crafted academic essay. It's the sequence you follow when you want to write a very well-crafted mathematical proof. Mm -hmm. Now, if you talk to somebody, they'll say, and I do this with academics, I love doing it. They're very often disconnected from the basic everyday life <laughs> of the three little pigs. And when I say, well, when you teach people to write an academic paper, you're really just wanting them to do exactly the same thing as the author of the three little pigs did. And they look at me with wide eyes <laughs> as if I am something off another planet. How could I dare to make that comparison? <laughs> but when you look at it, the structure is exactly the same. And what I've been interested in looking at is those different structures. Not so much science fiction or fantasy or uh, moral tales or cautionary tales, mm -hmm. but what makes a particular story structure differ 
from another story structure. And what I found is big drum roll. Uh-huh. Da, 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 that we have different story structures because there are different kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. And there's something in how human consciousness has developed that has allowed us to match a particular type of problem to a story structure with a set of given steps that will lead us in the most effective, most efficient way to a solution. A solution for that particular kind of problem Mm -hmm. there are problems we can solve by ourselves there are problems we can't solve by ourselves and need the help of an external helper to come and help out that's the rags to riches structure or the death and rebirth structure Mm -hmm. there's always a prince that needs to come and solve the problem for the main character right there are stories where the problems are so big the divine intervention is necessary Mm -hmm. and i classify those under the heading of threshold crossing stories Mm -hmm. there is a threshold between the world the dimension of being in which humans exist and the dimension of being where metaphysical beings angels demons fairy godmothers those kind of characters Mm -hmm. exist and i think those are symbolic manifestations of underlying realities Mm -hmm. that we carry within us almost our imaginations you, know, you could extend this to this current thinking that some people think we are living in a parallel universe and we don't actually have control either of our own destiny or even who we are and where we're living you know you can extend that into any other kind of arena but that is part of the the human story isn't it why are we here why are we on this planet why this planet and for how long and and what does the future hold which brought me to my question about futuristic thinking. This is story a way of actually calculating or working through, if it is a formula, some kind of way of coping with the future, which either is or isn't unknown, but is is different from the now. Well, I'll um, give you a classic example, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily science fiction or futuristic, but it is fantastical. The Mahabharata, a great, mm-hmm. huge, epic Indian cycle which according to legends and people that whose opinions i respect was put together at the age in which culture was diminishing the kali yuga descending mm-hmm. and the the samos the people who are aware of this energetic transformation wanted to capture something of the essence of whatever it was they felt should be preserved about the knowledge that would serve the human race and put it in this form, the form of the story, which has lasted mm-hmm. for millennia uh-huh, uh-huh. and really has helped. You mentioned filmmaking and Bollywood and the formulaic approach to filmmaking there. I don't find that in Bollywood films. Uh-huh. Yes, they have their tropes, they have their genres, they have their... Um, dance things and they're wonderful but there's far more of a tradition of self-reference of working with the genre playing with it mm-hmm. and a much deeper sense of connecting to mystery and profundity in that tradition 
family mm-hmm. values, um, religious values, spiritual values, are all generally much more respected in that tradition than they are in the Western tradition. But again, that's a generalization. There are some mm-hmm. wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful um, filmmakers internationally mm-hmm. that are creating wonderful work. But those threads of all those different themes you've just referenced there, they they can appear in some stories. They don't appear in all, but they they hold the fabric together, don't they? They hold the narrative together, like the weft. Um, I think at the moment, some people do feel as though we're waiting for the next big, great um either it's going to be a book or a tome or some thinking through some kind of that universe is crying out or people are crying out for something that's fundamental that really shifts our thinking that takes us to another level almost like the mahabhatra that we've we've gone beyond where we can survive as our on our own we need some uh, either spiritual guidance or some written guidance or something that is profound do you feel as though the energy the world's energies is leading us that way that there will be a great breakthrough or are we simply at the moment muddling through um, not really sure what's happening next i look around me john and i see great things happening and i see terrible things happening i don't think it's any different to how it has been uh, through history you look at history you look at the uh, stories of nero of caligula you look at what's happening today with Russia, Ukraine. It's been going on for a long, long time. What is very disquieting, is heartbreaking, is the extent of the imbalance that we're mm-hmm. living through today. Is one breakthrough going to be enough? Mm-hmm. I think it's a call for everyone to find balance. And I think story is a way to do that. An interesting wow point that I come to in my book is that every single story I have analyzed, every single story structure I have found, and I found 18 to date. There may be others out there, I don't know. These are the ones that have emerged time and time again over my 10 year research journey. Uh Every one of those is underpinned by what are called the Chinese circular structure. Uh It's an arrangement of the Chinese five elements with what they call earth, which the Western tradition would call ether, in the middle. That's the grounding point. And imagine a circle around that with four cardinal points, following a cycle that mirrors the life cycle of a plant. Mm-hmm. You have spring and emergence of the shoot at one cardinal point, let's say east. And then you go northwards, where there's a stage of division that's summer mm-hmm. where the root system is growing down and dividing the shoot system is growing up for leaves and branches and uh, those kind of divisions uh, developing and then you go around to autumn in the west and that's when the fruit separates from the tree and that's separation and then winter comes and there's a reconnection, the seed falls down, it's planted in the ground, and it's dormant, but that's where the energy is forming and reconnecting 
with uh -huh. the source in order to emerge anew in spring. That cycle that is the cycle of life, the cycle of seasons, uh -huh. that is grounded in perfect balance, the yin and yang in perfect balance in the center, uh -huh. is what drives story. Whenever there's some form of imbalance in that yin and yang energy, the good, evil, binary energy, it sends you around that cycle. Uh -huh. And the manner in which you travel around that cycle, whether you go forwards, whether you go backwards, whether you go fast or whether you go slow, is what gives rise to the different story structures. Uh -huh. It's all about balancing energy. Uh -huh. Yes, which again is repeated in the Ayurvedic tradition, isn't it? Where we looked at this a couple of podcasts ago. Uh, Ayurveda has those seasons, it has seasonality within it, it has cycles, it has repetition, pattern. Um, you know, I'm almost beginning to think like a mathematician. I'm not. My son would go crazy if I suggested I was. But there are, I keep using this word formula. It seems to me that there are repeated patterns. You said you found 18 structures, which seems to suggest that you can almost name these processes. You can identify them, classify them, which again is either a linguistic term or it's going to be a mathematical term. You can put them, you could codify them, give them purpose and meaning. And your stories, you know, are structured or if you like they're hung on those points they are sort of referencing those points coming back to your your cleaner telling you a story and um, you may not have remembered what she said but did you remember as much how she said it was the presentation of the story something that was really important to the story itself um, how did she keep your attention for that hour that you were being entertained I don't remember specifically, but I can link the experience to other experiences I've had listening to phenomenally good oral storytellers. They dissolve and the story tells itself through them. Uh -huh. It's a magical thing. And it sounds ridiculous, but that's what happens. And storyteller and story seeker become one and the story lives simultaneously in them. It's magic when it happens. So forgive me if I allow you to have your preference for a written book. Leave me my preference for the oral storytelling experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It beats written forms of stories any day. Yes, that this is where um... rendition. Yeah. Self-invested interest. This is where podcasts are making a comeback, or rather they're, they're a form of radio in a sense. They're a form of recording, a form of sound. But this is getting as close, I think, to that oral tradition, sometimes with or without the personal presence if it's videoed. But you've got there the voice, the human voice, uh, which is, um, as I said, both of us very fascinated by the human voice. It's almost as unique, I think, as our fingerprints. So it's something which is very different about us. And there are ways of engaging with people. Um, and if we're also telling a story, we can captivate, we can mesmerize people, we can convince people, uh, we can influence them to do things which maybe they do or don't want to do. But that voice is something that is very important. And this is obviously what parents do when they're reading children bedtime stories. They're trying to 
get them to sleep. So sometimes there's an element of fear in there, but oftentimes it's some kind of way of just lulling them, the lullaby to actually get them to relax and get them near sleep. So there's something almost uh, meditative, like a meditation within this for me, that um, a well-read story, let's come back to that, that would be from text or print, but a well-spoken, a well-choreographed, um, that would imply dance, but some kind of well-phrased, well-worded story delivered in a very human way has an appeal, and that must come back to this central essence of why we have the story. You know, there's something in there that when it's conveyed through the human voice, because I'm going to come to artificial intelligence in a minute, but that is something which is very profound and it's very powerful. And we still want it, don't we? We still need it. Yes, absolutely. The human voice was the source of every of language, really. We talk about parts of speech when we teach programmer. Mm-hmm. We talk about um, spinning a yarn and uh, telling a, a tale. The acts of counting and mathematics, of weaving, all li- link back to story. Story mm-hmm. is at the heart of everything. And it is the differences in the types of sounds that gives rise to vowels and consonants that form syllables. Syllables form words. Words form sentences. Those are the basic building blocks of language. And if you link that back to yin-yang energy, well, uh, the yin energy just flows. That's like a vowel. There's nothing Mm -hmm. to stop it. Mm -hmm. But the yang energy expands with a bang, and that's when the consonants come in and stop the flow and create uh, difference, diversity. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what we do when we communicate, we use that variety of energy in exactly the same way as we do in a larger fractal version Uh that we recognize the story, but it all boils down to those elements, fundamental elements of vowels and consonants that we use in language. Uh That is what story is based on. Why do you think in ancient Greece in the very, very early liberal arts tradition of the Progymnasmata, were people encouraged to talk about the stories they read, to listen to Homer, to discuss them, Uh to not just write stories, but to tell them to each other and critique them based on oral delivery. Why they were trained in rhetoric to become active citizens. Uh And that then gives rise to poetry, to philosophy, and to the passing down of laws through poetry, through music, through engagement with mystery and mm-hmm. magic. And democracy, yeah. yeah. Let me come to, um, as we sort of need to draw towards a close, um, artificial intelligence. Now, I attended a conference yesterday, which was all about the impact of artificial intelligence or intelligences, plural, on language learning. And in particular, chat GBT, this new kind of model which has been developed, which, you know, you can say, please write me a story in the style of Shakespeare, which uh, produces a marketing piece for John Scott Lawton's English, you know, podcast. And out will come this 500 words, however many words I've asked for in the style of Shakespeare, promoting my podcast using internet-based resources that it's found that connect 
those words together. Now, is that going to be a threat to storytelling? Is it an enablement? Is it something which will drive storytelling further? Does it have a connection back to voice? How do you feel artificial intelligence plays into your story and structure? Will you have to add it as an appendix to the complete guide or um, is it something which you think we've been leading this way naturally anyway? I think it's a contradiction in terms. The very essence that makes story story that makes a human being different from an artificially created machine is that element of consciousness. Consciousness drives everything. Consciousness and that yearning, that love of unity. Until the uh, AI is okay, it's, it's a tool. Mm -hmm. And tools are useful. But everything depends on how you use the tool. And I would rather use a very well-made, handcrafted tool to create something that unites head, hand and heart than use a thing, something that will do my thinking for me. Mm -hmm. So in essence, are you saying it lacks an identity and a soul? Yeah, in essence, yes. Mm -hmm. So you can have very well-written stuff that lack soul. Yes. And I know you can ask it questions, but still doesn't take it further forward. So I, I think that area is going to be fascinating to look at what's produced. Leon, I'm it's... going to encourage everybody to look out for your book because, um, you know, it's going to be a very hefty tome. It is a hefty tome, but very rich and full in its content. So Story and Structure, A Complete Guide by Leon Conrad. I'll put links uh, in the podcast description to that. Um, but fascinating. And Leon, can I thank you very much indeed for your time? That's been a great uh, tour around this subject, which, uh, as all good stories, actually doesn't have an ending. Thank you, John. A pleasure. May your story continue beautifully and wonderfully. And may you engage with mystery. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye, Leon. Hi, John. Uh, it's Asif here. Hope you're well. Very much enjoying your various podcasts and uh, the sharing of your experiences, uh, not just on your website and your social platforms, but also through your uh, midweek virtual dinner parties, which I would thoroughly recommend to anyone who wants to practice English uh, or to learn to communicate with different um, variations of English language users. So anyhow, keep up the good work and uh, hope to catch up with you soon, my friend. Speak soon. Bye.